Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We're finishing it up this morning by looking at verses 31 and 32. Finishing up Ephesians chapter 4, not Ephesians, in case you were confused by that. Uh, you can find it on page 978 there in the Bibles provided in the chairs. If you're here and you happen to not have a Bible, we want to give you a Bible. So over on the welcome table, we have Bibles that are there just for you. Help yourself to those at any point. We want you to have the Word of God. On Memorial Day, May 27th, 1962, a fire broke out in a seam of the Buck Mountain coal mine near the small town of Centralia, Pennsylvania. Centralia was just your average, quiet, hardworking, blue-collar coal town of about 1,600 people. Initially, as the fire made its way through the coal seam, Efforts were made within the underground mine to contain it. Barriers were erected, blockades were set up. People fought diligently to stop that fire. Uh, They did the best they could, hoping that that the goal would be for that fire to hit that barrier and then burn itself out. Now, unfortunately, the area of that mine would have to be closed and jobs would be lost, but at least the fire would be contained. Or at least that's what they thought. And for the next two decades... Almost 20 years, firefighters and engineers labored diligently to contain that underground blaze, while people above went on just fairly oblivious to the fact that a fire was burning beneath. But in 1981, the fire burned through the last of the containment barriers and quickly made its way toward the town, fueled by the rich coal deposits that lay below Centralia. And almost overnight, fissures opened up from the ground, spewing toxic fumes and, and gases and smoke into the air. Changes in the structure of the earth below caused Route 61, the main thoroughfare, into the city to buckle and to crack. And the dividing line of the highway was now this huge, impassable crack. One 12-year-old boy nearly lost his life when he was out playing in his grandmother's yard when suddenly a 150-foot deep sinkhole just opened up in the ground below him. He narrowly escaped death by grabbing hold of the root of an oak tree. Trees began to turn white and become petrified. The foundations of hundreds of buildings began to shift so that they were no longer structurally sound. People soon realized that there was no going back. Centralia was unlivable. And so the government paid $42 million to relocate its citizens. Today, over 50 years later, despite all of their efforts... Centralia is a ghost town. That small town of once 160 people, where they lived and worked and played, now only five of the most diehard remain. Over 500 buildings have been destroyed. There's no single business there in the town. And Route 61, that main thoroughfare, was never fixed. Still divided by this huge, impassable crack. They actually decided to relocate Route 61 and divert it to bypass the town altogether. Pillars of smoke and toxic fumes, they still pour out of fissures in the ground. And that fire still burns. Many engineers believe that it could burn for another hundred years before it finally 
fizzles out, having finally made its way through all of the coal deposits that remain. It's a sad story, but one that is made worse when we learn how exactly the fire began. The blaze was started because the town had elected to have its firefighters burn their garbage in the city dump. It was actually an effort to tidy up the town and to to contain the rodent problem that they were starting to get there in the town that this blaze began. Now, the firemen had done this many, many times before. This was not new. And they thought that they had that fire out, but they were unaware of a tiny coal seam that surfaced on the hill next to the dump. And all it took was a single, unnoticed flame that burned its way underground through this unseen vein that eventually led to the destruction of Centralia, Pennsylvania. Bitterness, resentment, anger. It's a lot like that Centralia coal fire. It's that slow burn below the surface. Most of us are completely unaware of it, except for those occasional moments when it explodes in wrath. Still burning within, bitterness of heart seeps, toxic fumes of resentment and animosity and slander. It solidifies and petrifies grudges and animosity towards each other. It breaks down roadways for relationships. It destroys homes. And regrettably, if left unchecked, it will result in everyone moving away. But so often, we're unaware of the dangers that this tiny little flame that burns in our hearts can really do. So this morning, we're going to be talking about bitterness and anger, what it is, where it comes from, and by God's grace, what we can do about it. And so I want us to see this morning from Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, is that because we have been forgiven so much in Jesus, we can let go of the desire to punish and forgive. Because we have been forgiven so much in Jesus, we can let go of our desire to punish and forgive. So let's read the text together, Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. It says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Because we have been forgiven so much in Jesus, we can let go of our desire to punish and forgive. And Paul, just like he has four times before in verses 25 through 30, he begins with this prohibition, this command to put away. And so we need to look at that first. So point number one, we are to put off the desire to punish. Now verse 31 gives us a lot of different types of anger. He says, bitterness, wrath, anger, which is indignation, clamor, slander, and malice. Now, whether you explode in wrath or loud clamor, or you are the kind of person that just seems to stuff it, tucks it away in bitterness and resentment that may at times just boil to the surface in righteous indignation or slander, these are all forms of anger, okay? Whether you reveal it in wrath, breaking stuff, or you stuff it down as it burns away at your soul, it is anger. But, de- but behind our desire, or behind our anger is a desire to punish. 
It's a desire to judge. In any form of our anger, whether revealed or concealed, we are hating those that we are angry towards, and in anger, we are seeking revenge. I mean, we've all been there, right? You're driving down the interstate. You're biding by the law of the road. You're keeping the speed limit. When all of a sudden, some young punk in a sporty coupe goes zipping past you. Now, why did you just call him a name? Young punk, king of the road, or my personal favorite, idiot. I sound like Napoleon Dynamite when I drive. So here he goes. He zips past you, and you look forward, and what do you see? You see a sign for road construction. One lane is closing. You got to get over. And the first thought that crosses your mind is, well, he is not cutting over in front of me. Now, why do you think that? Why did that thought cross your mind? Why wouldn't you just let him in? And of course, it goes just as you expected. You get closer and closer to that flashing arrow, and those cones are being set up and diverting the traffic over. And that that young punk in that, that sporty little coupe starts nudging his way over, and you keep kind of pushing your way forward. And he keeps nudging himself over and flips on his signal, and you honk your horn. And then he gives you that universal sign of disapproval. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah? Now what do you think about him? Now what would you like to do to him? Do you get my point? That behind every form of anger is a desire to punish or judge others. We saw this a few weeks ago when we were looking at verses 26 and 27. Obviously this is a big enough deal that Paul has to bring it up twice. There he says, Be angry and do not sin and do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And now here he picks it up again. And when we looked at this passage last time, or in verses 26, last time I gave you a definition of anger from Robert Jones's book, Uprooting Anger. I highly recommend that to you. In fact, I put up on our blog, redeemerchurch.wordpress.com, a whole list, a whole host of resources on anger. And I did that because I'm an angry person. Um, But Jones defines anger as our whole person's active response of negative moral judgment against a perceived evil. And I unpacked that last time for you. Our whole person's active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. In our anger in any form, we are making a judgment. We believe that this person, this thing, this situation has committed an evil against me and I must actively respond against it with my whole being, with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength. But let's just look at these different types of anger that Paul lists for us for a minute. What is bitterness? Bitterness is animosity or resentment. It's an inward emotion. It's an under-the-surface anger that avoids or refuses to be reconciled. In bitterness, we are hating and refusing to forgive another for the evil that was done against me. Now, I might not be exploding at you, but there's this slow boil in my soul. And so I ignore you, or maybe I'm short with you, or maybe when you come and talk to me, I'm just, I'm just keyed up, ready to just fire a retort back and just put you in your place. 
I harbor a grudge against you. I refuse to let go of what you've done to me, and I don't want you to forget it either. So I continually bring it up every time we get into a heated discussion. In bitterness, we're seeking to punish another. I want to hold your sin before you. I might be real calm and placid about it. I might not get all worked up, but I'm never letting go of this. And you're going to feel it. And we can minimize it as, well, you know, that person's irritating. I just don't like that person or he annoys me. But deep down, there's this root of bitterness that is unwilling to let go of what that person has done to you. And every time that person does something that you don't agree with, what you do is you quietly pull out that laundry list of everything that you keep against him and you write in one more reason why I should hate him. One more reason why he deserves judgment. What about wrath? That one's easy, right? Rage, passionate anger. It's easy because it's so outward. It's red-faced, blood-boiling, slobbering, breaking stuff, passion. You're furious. But you know, it's also there when you grit your teeth and you just clamp down really hard, or when you grip that steering wheel so hard to avoid giving that young punk a sign of your own. In that moment, I want to exact my sovereign power in judgment upon that fool. The next word in the list is just anger in the ESV, but behind the word is more of a punitive wrath. This word is the word that's most often used in describing the judging wrath of God. It is a condemning anger. It's it's an anger that's associated with my decision, right? It's It's an anger associated with judgment. But here's the problem with that. We are not God. And most of our anger, almost exclusively all of our anger, is not righteous. It is self-righteous indignation. Now, in this case, it's a self-righteous indignation that leads to judgment or punishment of another, even if I think it never goes beyond my mind or my heart. We just know when somebody's angry, and we know when someone's judging us, even if they never say it. Next, there's clamor. Clamor is shouting, crying, or crashing. Clamor clamor is loud expressions of angry emotions. It's the noises that you hear when your neighbors are at it again and you're wondering if you're going to have to call the cops. Yelling, cries to manipulate, even raised voices in anger, they're all considered clamor. To that, Paul adds slander. Now, there's many times where we don't often associate insults or harsh words that could smear or malign one's character with anger, but in truth, they're inseparable. I mean, why on earth would you call somebody names? Because you're angry at them. Slander is an attempt to make someone out to be a villain. It's abusive, false, blasphemous speech that attempts to persuade others to stand in judgment against that person or against that thing. It is 
hate-filled speech that is willing to lie and damage another so that others would stand with you in judgment against that person. That's what slander is. And then there's malice. It's hatred, it's spite, it's ill will toward another. Malice is the desire to wish curses upon someone else. It's fault finding or longing to see another fall or to see them fail or to see them be destroyed. You can't rejoice in their successes, in their wins, in their joys because you're always in competition with everyone. And if they succeed, you somehow interpret that as your own failure. And you might never say a word about it to anyone. But in your heart, you can be filled with malice toward others. Friends, do you see how anger is more than an emotion or behavior that simply needs to be managed? Do you see that the goal is not just to find more socially acceptable forms of expression as if bitterness or resentment or self-righteous indignation or malicious thoughts are somehow any better than angry outbursts? Do you see that underneath all of these forms of anger is a desire to judge, a desire to punish? Do you see how anger is a whole personed active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil? Now, hopefully... By now, God is opening our eyes to see maybe some of the ruling wants or desires or beliefs that manifest themselves in these types of anger. That behind any of these types of anger is a self-exalting pride. Most of the time, when I'm angry or bitter, it's not because of an actual sin against God. I'm not righteously angry because this person has sinned against God, but no, because somehow that person has threatened me. They threatened my kingdom, my rights, my concerns. They've sinned against me in some way. They've, they've threatened my glory, my good. And so I'm standing against them. Most of the time, my anger is not accompanied by other godly qualities. It's not expressed in godly ways because I'm not concerned about God and his glory, but me and mine. Now, in anger and bitterness, I am wanting to play God. I want to be able to control the situation. And when things don't go according to my plan, I get angry. I want to be the standard of what is right and what is wrong. I want to set the rules. I want to establish my own moral law. And if you transgress my law, then I have the right to exact punishment upon you. And so, whether I slam my fist into someone's face, or I sigh and roll my eyes, whether I yell and scream and cry and call you names, or I fume underneath and I pull out, once again, that laundry list of every time you do something that I don't approve of and just write in another thing. Any of these types of anger, what I'm trying to do is live as if this is my world and I am God. As this is the nature of sin, 
And anger is just one of many expressions of a rebellious heart against God. You see, when we are bitter, when we're wrathful, when we're indignant, when we clamor or slander or are filled with malice in our hearts, we're not just angry at a person or an object or a situation. Ultimately, we are angry at God. But you must understand that beneath that mindset, that predisposition, that outlook on life, that attitude is expressed in words and actions as fundamentally a resentment about the nature of God. We are questioning his goodness, his wisdom, his purposes, his providence in our lives. When you come to that point in life where life is just hard and you're being beaten down and you feel like you have to stand up for yourself, you begin to think in your heart, even if you never ever say it out loud, God has not been good to me. I have been shortchanged. I've been done wrong. This is wrong. And this builds and it builds and it builds. I don't deserve this. I deserve better. God, you should have done this to me. And it wells itself up. Until there's an attitude, a heart disposition of bitterness that begins to express itself in words and in actions. And ultimately in a grudging attitude that doesn't desire what is best for others. We see people as obstacles in the way of my kingdom and my rights and my concerns. And friends, I know this to be true because this is talking about me. I know it's true. But you need to understand here that Paul's ultimate concern here is that you just stop angry behaviors. He's, he's not just saying, hey, you need to stop being short with people. You need to stop lashing out at them. You need to stop judging people in your thoughts and your words and attitudes. He's, he's not ultimately concerned about your behavior, but your heart towards God and your heart towards others. These types of anger just manifestations. They're just thorns or the bad fruit of wars that are taking place in my heart. These ruling wants and desires and beliefs that I want. I long for this other thing more than I want God. And so I trade God for the pursuit of that. I make myself God and I judge you. And so Paul says, listen, Put it all away. Put it all away. Identify what those wants and desires and beliefs are in your heart. And let go of them. You have to understand that they cannot satisfy. Stop believing those lies and trust in the Lord who is good and wise and sovereign and righteous. He is your judge. Stop trying to be that for him. That hard attitude of anger will only destroy you. The same way that that coal fire destroyed Centralia, Pennsylvania. Turn away from your desire to be like God. Put away that desire to punish. 
But not only are we called to put off the desire to punish, we are to replace it. It's not enough just to take away. We must be filled with something else. And so second, we are called to put on a heart of forgiveness. Verse 32 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Now, Paul, remember, is writing to Christians. He's writing to followers of Christ, and he reminds them of their union with each other through the gospel. In this very brief verse, he uses two words to remind us that we have been made one in Christ, and therefore we have a covenant responsibility to each other through our union with him. The first one is found uh, there in the command to be kind and tenderhearted to one another. He uses that word four times in Ephesians. We are to be kind and tenderhearted to one another, submitting to one another, bearing with one another in love, because we are members one of another. But the second word he also uses there means one another. It's the way it's translated here, but it, it, most often it's translated each other. And that word is used 14 times in Ephesians alone. In fact, there are 23 times in the book of Ephesians that talk about how we are to live life one to another, with each other, each one of you doing this for the other. 23 times in the book of Ephesians alone. In this case, we are to forgive each other because we are members of each other, meant to live and love each other and build one another up towards maturity in Christ. We are to sacrifice ourselves for each other and to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord with all our hearts. And this is especially true for husbands. This is used multiple times in in chapter 5, how they are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. But so often... We forget. We forget that marriage is more than a contract. We forget that the church membership is more than optional, voluntary agreement. We forget that becoming a Christian is more than walking up to the front of the church and praying a sinner's prayer. In each of these, a spiritual union occurs. In marriage, We make covenant promises before God to have and to hold for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health, till death do we part. That includes when you sin against me and when I sin against you. In marriage, we become one flesh. This is more than physical intercourse. This is an intermingling of souls. And we can't just discard that and walk away from that. A simple signing of a document and paying thousands of dollars to get a divorce can't remove all that. And so, we must forgive. The church, church is not some optional organization that we can take or leave or use up or throw away or flake out on when I'm just not feeling it or when something else that is better comes along. No, when we were made alive in Christ, we were made so together. I mean, Paul adds that, that, that uh, prefix, together. We were made alive together. We were raised together. We were seated in the heavenly places together with Christ. Happened together. Christ didn't remake us into a bunch of new men and women. It says in chapter 2, verse 15, that he made one new man in place of the two, so making peace. 
In Christ, we are now fellow citizens of God's kingdom. We are members, brothers and sisters of God's family. We are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are mutually dependent members of Christ's body. And we are called to live that out practically, really, together. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You can't do that unless you're willing to forgive. And through our union with Christ, we were adopted. We were redeemed. We were forgiven. We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Therefore, we do not want to grieve that Holy Spirit who has sealed us by living according to our former sinful manner of life that was corrupted through deceitful desires, ruled by wants and longings and beliefs that would lead them towards bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice. And when you hear the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believe in Christ, that does far, far more than simply forgiving you of the guilt and the consequences of your sin. It unites us together in Christ. We're united to Christ vertically, to each other horizontally. It transforms the way that we think, the things that we love, the very purposes that we live for. The gospel changes us. We are made new. And it's because of that change. It's because of our union together with Christ that we are called to eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And to do that, we must forgive. He says that we are to be kind to one another. He's not saying, oh, just be, be nice people. Be nice people on the outside, inside, wars, rage, fire of bitterness. Just be nice on the outside, burning on the inside. No, he says, we are to be kind to one another. We are called to imitate the benevolence of God, the kindness and forbearance and patience of God that according to Romans 2, 4, leads us to Repentance. We are to be kind in such a way to help facilitate the process of repentance and reconciliation. We are to be tender-hearted or compassionate. Tender-hearted is the opposite of being hard-hearted or bitter towards one another. Rather than being cold and apathetic and indifferent towards each other, we are to care for one another, be concerned about one another, speak the truth in love, come around, share in one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. We are to forgive each other. Quite literally, he says that we are to grant grace toward each other. To grant grace. Grace is unmerited, undeserved favor. It's not treating us as our sins deserve. It's responding to the sins of others in the same way that God has responded to mine. Forgiveness, then, is costly. Forgiveness will rarely be easy. It's rarely going to just be comfortable and light and fluffy. Forgiveness cost God his son. Forgiveness cost the son his perfect life. And so, friends, you've got to be honest with yourself. The forgiveness is going to cost you. 
When someone sins, a debt is incurred. Now, if it's a small debt, that's relatively easy to pay. Like if you just say some tactless word and it hurts my feelings, well, that's relatively easy for me to forgive and to overlook and to, you know, just still remain in unity. But, but sometimes a debt is very large. Betrayal. Sins that result in major loss. Let's say you took the life of one of my sons. That's a much greater debt. And it's going to be hard to pay off. And so God, God, God can forgive that, right? But in looking at our relationships with each other, that relational debt that has occurred between us, we have three options. I can pay the debt, you can pay the debt, or the debt can go unpaid, right? Now, if no one pays that relational debt between you and me, it will fester in bitterness and resentment and anger. It will remain unresolved throughout this life to the detriment of us both. It will eat us both alive. Another option is that I can require you to pay the debt and I can hold that debt against you until I feel like it is sufficiently repaid. And this is often what we try to do, right? It's what we most often do. And when it doesn't happen, we're bitter, we're angry, we're resentful. The problem with this is that the offender might be able to replace something tangible. Oh, I broke a vase, I can replace a vase. But he can never fix what was relationally broken fully, okay? He can only go so far. In order for that relational debt to be mended completely, it requires mutual activity. He must be willing to confess his sin and repent of it, seek to do whatever is necessary to reconcile and and bring resolution to that, but you must be willing to, to forgive. It doesn't work if he's willing and you're not. Or at great cost to you, you can be willing to pay the debt. You can be willing to forgive. And in many cases where there is anger and bitterness against one another, it's because someone has deeply, deeply wounded you. The idea of putting away that bitterness and forgiving that person is a bitter pill to swallow. Now, don't think for a moment that I don't understand how hard that can be. I get it. But as Christians who were forgiven, while we were still sinners, we are called to forgive. If you have sinned, against someone, you are to go and tell your brother your fault and to be reconciled. If someone has sinned against you, you are to go to that person and tell him his fault. And if he repents and you put away your anger and bitterness and forgive him, then you've regained your brother. In most cases where there's anger and bitterness over being sinned against, you're probably going to need help. You're going to need help to confess. You're going to need help to forgive. 
And so if you've just kind of come to the realization, I, I, I realize I'm struggling to forgive this person. Or I realize that, boy, there is this animosity, this bitterness between us, and it's because I haven't really confessed this sin, then you need to seek out help, all right? So ask for it. Talk to one of the elders, talk to your community group leader, talk to someone in your community group, talk to your LTG, but get help in working through this process of reconciliation and just know that it's a process. Forgiveness is a process. It's real easy to say, I forgive you and feel it in the moment and then months down the road, boy, it comes up again. And what do you do? You need people to walk with you in that. Find someone who is patiently and wisely able to help you to reconcile with your brother. But, but do this. Be eager to seek to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And forgiveness can be very difficult. It's very complex. It's a process and more than likely you're going to need help to do it. But I've got to be honest with you here. I've got to shoot you straight. I wouldn't be loving you if I didn't. I would... Uh, if you have received forgiveness by the blood of Christ, if you are a Christian, then failure to forgive is not an option. It's just not. It doesn't mean that you have to put yourself right back into that situation again, right? So in cases of, say, abuse, someone has abused you, that forgiveness doesn't mean that you put yourself right back into the line to be abused again, but you must forgive that person, okay? And here's why. This is the key to putting away the desire to punish and putting on a heart of forgiveness. And that's our third point, that we can put away anger, we can put on forgiveness because we have been forgiven so much. We can put away anger and forgive because we have been forgiven. Paul says in verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. If you forget that last part, you're never going to forgive. The grace we have not to burn with anger and a judgment towards another, but instead grant grace to those who have sinned against us comes from the grace that we have received already from God in Jesus Christ. God will sustain us. God will equip us. God will enable us to do what he's called us to do. Now, do you remember the, the parable of the unforgiving servant? When Jesus tells a story in Matthew 18, a servant owes a master a great debt, 10,000 talents. Um, you know, it, it basically, it, like, people kind of question the numbers. It's at least $6 billion, right, in, in today's standards. $6 billion, and for a common laborer, a servant, you're never going to be able to pay that off. It's hopeless, could work lifetime after lifetime after lifetime after lifetime and never pay that off. And so he owes this debt against his master and his master's ready to throw him in prison to pay off the debt, but he pleads with him. And what happens? The master says he's willing to forgive his debt. And then what happens next? The same servant who's just been forgiven six billion plus dollars worth of debt turns around and he demands money from a servant that owes him 100 days wages, basically the equivalent of, you know, maybe $12,000. $12,000, I mean, it's not a light amount, but when you've been forgiven $6 billion, it doesn't seem to add up, right? It doesn't make any sense. And so the master comes to him. Jesus concludes this parable by saying, 
The master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in anger, the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Friends, a failure to forgive is forgetting how much you've been forgiven. It's thinking that you don't need forgiveness. The strength to put away anger and forgive when it comes to uh, comes when we remember that we have been forgiven. If we compare our sins to one another, we will never forgive. Because in that case, when I look at your sin and you look at mine, one of us is coming out on top and one of us is coming out lower right? Your sin is worse than mine. Therefore, I do not have to forgive you and we will justify our unforgiveness towards others if we're just looking one at each other. But when I remember how many times I have betrayed Christ and yet how merciful he was toward me, then I can forgive the one who's betrayed me. We have all been forgiven so much. And when we stop comparing ourselves to each other, start comparing ourselves to Christ, your debt, however painful, seems small in comparison to the massive debt that I have incurred against him. And that helps me to remember that by by God's grace, I have been forgiven so much. And so by God's grace, I can forgive. And you have to remember, Paul is not lost on this, okay? These are not just sort of niceties that Paul is just kind of putting out there, just like, okay, guys, just forgive one another, just treating it like it's some flippant deal. I mean, remember where Paul is? Does anyone remember where he is when he's writing this letter? He's in prison, wrongly accused, Without even so much as a trial, thrown in prison, he pleads to Caesar. He's still in prison, unjustly. He's been suffered. He's been beaten. And why? Simply because he was seeking to serve Christ. Paul didn't deserve that. Paul had good reason to be angry, to be bitter, to be unwilling to forgive those who had put him there. But instead, he tells the Christians in Ephesus that he is a prisoner for Christ on their behalf. He says, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Instead, he asked them to pray that that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. See, Paul understands that our good and gracious heavenly father has purpose in this suffering. So he's willing to face hardship. He's willing to be hurt. He's willing to let go and forgive. And Rather than becoming bitter, he entrusts himself to the good, wise, gracious and perfect plan of God. The plan which is laid out intricately in each and every one of our lives. 
It's not that Paul's situation is somehow unique from ours. Yeah, he's a different person. But God is still working in each and every situation, each and every circumstance, each and every person. It is not an accident that this has happened to you. I know it hurts, right? It's not time to blame God. God knows what he's doing. But you can trust in him. He's good. He's wise. And he's using this for your glory. Friends, when we forgive others, we display the power of the gospel. When the world looks at you and says, why, why are you not bitter? Why are you not angry at that so-and-so for what he's done to you? I mean, how could you rejoice in the midst of this trial and suffering? I mean, look at what he's done to you. Well, that is an opportunity to boldly display and boldly proclaim the gospel of forgiveness. It's an opportunity to talk about the grace of God in your life and how he has sustained you and how he's holding you up as you have depended upon him. And so the next time you're faced with a trial from sin, you know, someone has sinned against you and you are faced with that, that decision. Am I going to grow embittered towards this person? Am I going to respond in anger and malice and slander? Or am I going to forgive? I, I just want you to consider these things. First, don't compare your sin to his. Right? If you do, one will always be worse than the other. You'll always be willing, able to justify your unwillingness to forgive. Instead, compare them both to Christ. Okay? If I incurred a debt against you of $12,000 and you've incurred a debt against me of $10,000, then yeah, mine is greater. But in light of that $6 million debt that we both have against God, then it means nothing. So I can forgive. Second, remember that massive debt that you have incurred in your sin and just how gracious God was to forgive you. That while you were a sinner, still dead in your sin, still enslaved by the world, the devil, and your own sinful flesh, you were justly condemned under his wrath. God forgave you. And he did it at the cost of the blood of his son. You were walking in the passions of your flesh, and yet God made you alive through the death and resurrection of Christ. And he has removed your sin as far as the east is from the west. He has taken your sin and placed it upon his son, and he has taken the righteousness of Christ and he has clothed you in it. You are now covered with the righteousness of Christ. A righteousness that is not your own. That you can never earn. That you can never deserve. It is yours freely because of his grace. Because he loved you. Because he forgave you. And therefore you can look upon that other person knowing the debt that you've incurred. Knowing the grace that you've been given. And you can forgive. Now, we all deserve hell. He has given us life in Christ now and forever. At the cost of the blood of his son. So what, what point is there in holding this resentment against this person when Christ has dealt with it? What's the point for me, holding on to this and being unwilling to forgive the person that has wronged me. What is it then for me to be kind to the one who is unkind to me? Third, 
understand that a refusal to forgive is an indication that you believe that you do not need the forgiveness of Christ. I mean, do you really want to stand before the Lord on your own merit? Fourth, and this one's really, really, really important. This is one of those things where it's just like, man, I, I need to live this out practically. Be kind and tenderhearted. What I mean by this, that is this. Look upon the one who has sinned against you and show compassion. Because it could be that that person is still enslaved by sin. Or in that moment is believing lies and is enslaved to sin. He, maybe he understands uh, or he at least needs to understand and you could be the means of helping him to understand the futility of a life lived for himself and the eternal hell that awaits him. But he might be burdened, really, really burdened by worldly sorrow and is condemning himself. We often feel shame over our sin. He might believe that his sin against you or against God is somehow unforgivable. And in that moment, you can be the means of helping him to see the grace of God in Jesus Christ by your willingness to forgive. Well, if you can forgive me, then a perfect God can forgive me. And he's proven that through the death of his son. And fifth, I would just say that you must remember that apart from God's restraining grace in your life, you are capable of the exact same things. It doesn't matter how bad the sin is. You are capable of doing that and more. I remember distinctly when I learned that lesson in a real life situation. It was my senior year at the University of Missouri, I was studying human development and family studies, and I had to do an internship. So I did my internship for the Division of Family Services. For whatever reason, I think because I was a big guy, they put me on the investigation team, which meant that I got to go to all the court hearings and proceedings and things for all of these families where there was abuse and neglect and, and you name it. And, and during this time, I got to jump in. I wasn't involved in the the actual case, but because it was already in court at this time, but I had to sit in at the court proceedings for one of the worst cases of child abuse in the history of Missouri. It's up there towards the top in the history of the United States. It was bad. Really, really bad. So much so that death would have been mercy for these kids. And I had to sit in that courtroom and I listened to the mother plead not guilty. Well, I had read all the files. I had heard the reports. She was guilty as could be. And it was everything that I could do not to just jump that banister and just start wailing on her. I mean, it was so unbelievably hard in that moment, to contain myself. I was just full of rage and indignation. How could she say that she's not guilty? 
And I left that courtroom and I went home and I knew that soon I was going to have to go back and I was going to have to do the same thing with the father. I knew that he was going to plead not guilty and he was even more guilty than the mother. And I was just thinking to myself, how am I going to do that? And I was praying to the Lord. I was driving because I lived in Columbia. This was in Jefferson City, Missouri. So I'm driving the half hour trip there and I'm just praying to the Lord. Like I've got to sit in here and not kill this man. I've got to not kill this man. How am I going to do this? And the Lord said to me, Chad, apart from my grace, you would do the same thing. And it just struck me of how many moments where I was filled with fury and wrath and indignation and the Lord stayed my hand. I think about the mercy of God and, and where I grew up and how I was able to have family around who cared me and loved me and didn't abuse me. I remembered the gospel and how I've been told that over and over and over again since I was a little kid. And how it came to bear and so it helped me in the midst of my own anger and my own frustration and my own indignation and wrath. And I realized, apart from the grace of God, I would do the same thing. We're all monsters here. It's just a matter of how much have we given ourselves over to it. When you look around this room, all you see are sinners. No one is righteous. No, not one. We are rebels to the will of God. And the only difference in us is whether or not we have been redeemed by the grace of God. Whether or not we are truly trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of our sin and the hope of eternal life whether or not we have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Whether or not the Holy Spirit is working in us, leading us towards holiness, towards conformity to Christ. You see, it's only by the grace of God that we are what we are. It's only when you realize that you have received a kindness that you did not deserve. It's only when you believe that God was compassionate towards you and did not harden his heart against you. It's only when you accept that you are a recipient of a forgiveness that you can never, ever deserve, that you are then freed from the power of your anger and your bitterness to see all that God has done for you, that, there, that he has been better to you than you could ever dare dream imaginable, and that in his love and his kindness and his goodness to you, he has set you free to be kind to those who do not deserve it, to forgive those who have deeply, deeply offended you, who do not deserve to be forgiven. My friends, he has freed you. Not simply by telling you to do it, but by showing you his love and his kindness and his forgiveness and by working in your heart in such a lavish way that it literally changes your life. It is because we have been forgiven so much in Christ that we can put away that desire to punish and forgive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what are we but debtors of mercy?
What have we done that we can boast in before you? Who are we to stand in judgment and say that you are not fair, that you are not right, that you are not good, that you are not merciful, that you are not perfect, that you are not just, that you are not holy, that you are not righteous, that you are not loving, that you are not merciful? Father, I pray that our eyes would be open to your good and sovereign and kind plan for us in Christ. I pray that we would bask in the wonder of the fact that you have been kind in leading us to repentance, that you have been patient with us, that you have been tenderhearted, that you have forgiven us of a debt that we can't even calculate. Father, help us to let go of the pain and the hurt and the bitterness and the resentment and the anger that we feel towards others. And we need your grace to do this. Father, there are those who are hurting, who've been deeply scarred. And I pray that when they look at theirs, they see nail-scarred hands they see a wound from a spear in the side. They see that of a crown of thorns. And they remember that Christ paid it all so that we might be forgiven and be able to forgive. Lord, help us to delight in the cross. Help us to recognize the union we have with each other through him. Help us to bask in who you are and all that you've done for us. And help us to display the gospel in our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray.